This is the Side Hustle Show with Nick Loper, Episode 4. Welcome to the Side Hustle Show, where aspiring part-time entrepreneurs learn how to turn their side hustle dreams into reality. Because your 9 to 5 may make you a living, but your 5 to 9 makes you alive. And now, your host, Nick Loper. All right. Hey, everybody. Uh, Nick Loper here, and welcome to Episode 4 of the Side Hustle Show. We are on a roll. Uh, a little bit of housekeeping stuff before we get started. If you uh, have yet to like the Side Hustle Nation page on Facebook, uh, go over there, give us a thumbs up. It's uh, facebook.com slash Side Hustle Nation. Um, you know, a little bit of a formality since you obviously uh, like us already. But I think it's a cool opportunity to build a, um, you know, a helpful community of like-minded people um, on a social network that everybody's uh, already a part of anyways. Um, and second, your iTunes reviews are very much appreciated and uh, really help the show gain some traction in the universe of all the other podcasts that are out there. Um, so if you find this stuff uh, valuable, go over to iTunes and kind of brave their clunky interface to uh, leave us a review. Very much appreciated. And um, and that's it. Thank you for tuning in. means a lot to me that um, you would choose to have me uh, in your earbuds wherever you may be. Uh, I've got a great show for you today. My guest is uh, Kai Davis, a writer, entrepreneur, and marketer from Eugene, Oregon. And um, like any Husky fan will tell you, that's um, a pretty miserable place to to call home. So we'll talk a little bit about how he's made his escape from there with his side hustle business. Um, but he's a, a speaker, a consultant, uh, kind of a jack of all trades and a great entrepreneur to have on the show. And um, Kai, welcome. Thank you. It's a privilege and an honor to be here. Thanks for inviting me on. No, definitely happy to have you. Now, uh, Kai and I first met through our, our mutual love of uh, Fancy Hands uh, through Twitter. On uh, So Fancy Hands, if you're not familiar, it's like this uh, virtual assistant startup company in New York that's, um, you know, they specialize in doing these little like micro tasks for you. So it's 45 bucks a month and you send them basically 15 things that you don't want to do. Um, and I feel like Kai, you're, you're more of a power user than me. And sometimes I'm struggling uh, to think of stuff to send over. Like what was the last uh, task you sent them? Oh, the last task I sent them, I landed in LA. I, I started doing a lot of working out recently and I've wanted to buy a kettlebell for a couple months. And as I got closer to leaving Hawaii, I was like, oh, I really want to buy this so I could do some morning kettlebell swings and uh-huh. work out with it. <laughs> But I didn't want to be the guy carrying a 60-pound kettlebell onto a plane. And I didn't want to ship it back to the U.S. So as soon as I landed in L.A. about a week ago, I whipped out my phone and sent a quick email to Fancy Hands. I'm like, hey, this is the hotel I'm at. Can you check to see if there's any used sporting goods stores within three miles of here? And if they have a 62-pound kettlebell in stock? 30 minutes later, they had sent me a list of three different stores, two of which had it in stock. And I was able to drive over, pick it up, and it's the newest addition to my family. That's awesome. I actually have one shipped here and it was, uh, you know, I was kind of waiting and waiting. Finally, one showed up on Amazon and but it showed up and it was free shipping. I felt so bad for whoever was shipping the thing because, you know, it weighs, mine was not 60 something pounds, but um, a little bit lighter than that. But it showed up and the, just the box is like triple boxed and just completely battered. So oh. I agree. Finding it locally is probably a better move. 
it, it worked out for me. But yeah, we, we connected over fancy hands and I just love the service. It's one of my favorite uh, power tools on the internet. I've said to friends between Fiverr and fancy hands, I'm a wizard. I could do anything. <laughs> I love Fiverr. I was supposed to uh, try and find the uh, the voiceover intro for the podcast on Fiverr. So um, if you if you like the intro, that's uh, that's from Fiverr. <laughs> Sweet. Yeah, they, Fiverr is just great for getting those little tasks. Whenever I need a logo for a side project or a business or business cards for a friend, I'll just hop onto Fiverr and find somebody who could get me like that quick first version of it. Something that'll work to prototype, work to test it. Yeah, totally. Even if it takes, you know, two or three different um, gigs, it's still going to be cheaper than pretty much any other option out there. And and it gives you multiple options. You're able to pick something that works for you. And if it doesn't work out, it's such a little risk. $5, $10. I'm comfortable losing that to get one iteration closer to what I really want. Exactly. Awesome. Uh, awesome service over at Fiverr. Um, I'm shocked that they aren't sponsoring you already. (laughs) I've got them on my uh, virtual assistant site, but um, I don't know that they have any uh, referral program for me. Ah, I know. know. I'm working on them. (laughs) So uh, so we can jump around a little bit, but let's uh, kind of start at the beginning. You've been involved in a ton of different uh, businesses and specifically side hustle businesses while you're going to school and while you're working full time. So can you give us a bit of a background on... um, just what makes you tick and kind of where, you know, how you got started in, in entrepreneurship? Definitely. I'm glad to, uh, I, I've always had this wonderful, beautiful fascination with entrepreneurship where somebody might say, Oh, like I've grown up and I always was interested in like this form of literature or interested in sports, man, I I've just been like beautifully obsessed with business and marketing and entrepreneurship since I was in middle school. The first real business projects I started was probably when I was 15 or 16, I used to play this card game called Magic the Gathering. And I used to hang out at the card shop and see like the 20 year olds who played it trading cards, buying cards. And I slowly realized like, well, when I buy a card, like they're all worth different value. And just because I picked up a card for $3, somebody else, you might say, oh, that card's worth $10. I started seeing like these arbitrage opportunities in the game. So over a couple of years, I started buying up, building a collection, selling it on eBay, and eventually got to a point where I was an investor and manager of two different gaming stores in town. Oh, wow. And uh, after about probably six years playing the game, uh, qualifying for the professional tour, flying to Japan to compete oh, on geez, the really? tour circuit. Really? <laughs> See, I can, I can admit to being a magic nerd, too. We played a lot. We played it a lot. Is probably in middle school was the peak, but yeah, we played a mm-hmm. lot of magic. It was, it was a fun game. Oh, it was so much fun. I uh, I was into it heavily. <laughs> and uh, as you can tell, and uh, probably right around the time I turned 21, after I, after I uh, qualified for the Pro Tour and played on the Pro Tour and qualified for Nationals and played in Nationals, it just stopped being interesting to me. And I realized that I had crossed my two big bucket list goals off of my list, and I didn't really have any motivation left. And because I didn't have something new to shoot for, it just lost being interesting for me and i sold my collection and stopped playing but there's a cool example of, tr- of turning a hobby and kind of insider knowledge in a, in a real niche area into a business with um with the buying and selling on ebay and, and the local stores mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and i'd add to it like the the danger always in turning that hobby into a business is understanding what the motivation is for me 
the motivation was always like, I want to be a professional player. And once I had hit those goals, all of my interests had sort of fled from the game. And even the economic business aspect, I, I couldn't really motivate myself to be as involved anymore. And it just trickled away. So the, the biggest warning now, whenever I have a hobby and I decide, hey, this is something I think I could make money at, is trying to figure out, like, if I do that, will I still be interested in it? And what am I shooting for? What vision am I trying to achieve? Is there money in playing Magic professionally? Is it like World Series of Poker at the, at the high level? There's a little bit of money, but the prize purse is for like a 600, 700 person event. Maybe first place gets, I'm just trying to grab it from the back of my memory, maybe like $10,000 or $20,000. Second place gets 10, third and fourth get five. So there's some money there. And there are some people who are on what they call the gravy train who play through multiple events, finishing highly and make some amount of money at it. Okay. But the real money for the professional players is either founding a store off of their fame, writing articles for strategy sites and getting paid for it, or uh, uh, having it just be a hobby that makes them a little amount of money, but they have a main business that they spend their time working at. Okay. Okay. Mm-hmm. So with the with the reselling, did you like? I'm kind of curious as a 15 year old, like where you would get the the capital, like to buy inventory. And I mean, if it's you know three dollars here and there, you know, it's not a huge deal. But like, what what kind of inventory levels did you? I mean, were you talking like turn rate, like all sorts of like, you know, super nerdy business stuff, like at that age, or is it just like I'm gonna flip, you know, ten cards a week and then I'll be happy? Good question. I towards the end, I started thinking about things like, well, like what's actually my cost of doing business and how often am I cycling this inventory? But uh, I started off with some capital I had just from working summer jobs. I was a lifeguard. And uh, what, what else was I doing back then? I think being a lifeguard was my main source of income. And so I started funneling that money into buying up collections and eBaying them or selling the cards to friends or other stores and slowly grew up a decent sized nest egg, you know, for a 16 year old kid, a couple thousand dollars. Gotcha. Yeah, dude, you're rich at, <laughs> at 16. Oh, yeah. And uh, then the, the big win for me was a friend owned a store in town. And his wife said, hey, I love you. You love this store. It's me or the store. And he was like, well, I'm selling the business. Somebody has to buy it in three days. I wasn't able, I didn't have enough money to buy the complete store, but I was able to walk in and spend most of my money on buying up his entire collection of magic cards. Okay. And I was able to turn like that $4,000 investment into something like twelve dollars or $13,000. Okay. That's a, I mean, that's a big bet, but that's a big return. So, and, you know, built on... I mean, not not just a blind speculation, like you knew that the inventory was going to be worth something. Exactly. I'd spent a couple months working at that store, so I oh, knew it was okay. better than he did. And he let me look through everything. So I was able to say, like, there's a really, really solid return here. The only consideration was how long is it going to take me to flip it? On the plus side, I was a kid living at home. I was in high school, maybe just about to start college. So I didn't have any real cost of living. Yeah, not, not a lot of overhead. So that's awesome. Exactly. So that's that's really how I got started with that. And from there, through the first part of college, it was continuing to do that, buying up collections and uh, going to tournaments and just aggressively trading with people. And it was fun. I used to go to tournaments up in Portland, Oregon with like $4,000 in cash and come back with $8,000 in cards and spend the next month selling them on eBay and repeat a month or so later. So it definitely kept me flush while I was doing it. That's pretty cool. Mm -hmm. So so then in... Uh, so after that, and so that business kind of has run its course, um, you started a newspaper in, in college? 
I did. I went to the University of Oregon, as we said at the top of the show, and there were two or three main newspapers there. There was the Emerald, which is the paper of record for the university campus, liberal left-leaning college newspaper. And there's the Oregon Commentator, which was the more right-wing libertarian conservative paper. A buddy and I were hanging out one day, uh, my buddy Jackson Hager, and we were chatting on a sofa about how, man, there's no like comedy newspaper on the university campus. There's no onion S. There's no like paper, no venue to parody what's happening on campus. And we decided to start one. Okay. Okay. And, uh, man, starting it was the two of us sitting in the journalism computer lab one night and just wanting to like, we didn't know anything about what a minimal viable product was or a prototype was, but we knew we wanted to see if people liked it. So we spent a couple of days just like brainstorming 300, 400 word articles, things you'd see in like the onion. And yeah. he was a journalism major. So he was able to do a pretty decent layout in InDesign. We snuck into the journalism lab. Since he was a journalism student, he was able to print out an unlimited amount of pages. Okay, I was going to ask like, if this was a paper paper or, uh, you know, just a, a website version. It was a paper paper. We printed out 300 copies of it on eight and a half by 11 paper, folded it up, went to sleep at like 3 a.m., woke up the next morning at 7 and walked down to the center of campus. At this point, the paper name was actually the Weekly Enema, and <laughs> we published it every two weeks. And so... The two of us were maybe juniors at the time, standing in the center of campus at the start of the day, screaming, get your weekly enema, get your weekly enema, extra, extra, read all about it, <laughs> and just causing the biggest scene possible. I mean, if you want to get attention, standing in the center of campus screaming, get your weekly enema, makes people look at you, makes people come over and say, what did you say? <laughs> yeah, what are you guys and, doing? <laughs> exactly. And we, we got that attention fast. In about an hour, we had passed out 300 copies, and we were flabbergasted. We didn't know what to do next. So... We went back home, we thought about it, and we were like, okay, great, Like, we have to publish an issue too. <laughs> a, friend decide, a friend saw us do it, he was like, wow, I'm impressed that you guys actually produced this. I want to join in. So he joined us as a writer. We published an issue two and issue three and then broke for the summer. And when we came back, we both decided, well, let's try to grow this. Let's make this into a real thing. And over that school year, we grew it to, I think we had maybe 17 different people contributing articles to it, one or two graphic designers, one person helping with administrative tasks, so all volunteer. We switched from a one-page, eight-and-a-half by 11 paper that we folded ourselves to actually having it printed by a professional production studio in Corvallis, Oregon, Oregon and trucked down to us every day, or every uh, two weeks. Wow, that's, that's awesome. It, it was really crazy to actually grow it from, this is something we thought of when we were on a sofa drinking, to we actually have a staff, we have an office through the ASU of through the student union. We're taking in money from advertisers and we're actually getting this printed out. I think our final issue was eight or 16 pages. It was pretty big and we were incredibly proud of it. Okay. I was going to ask, uh, first about the ad sales. Mm -hmm. Um, so this was, um, um, a money-making venture or at least a breaking even venture from ad sales. See, <laughs> that's a great question. I, I had no clue how I should price the ads when we started selling ads. And my idea was, okay, uh, it looks like in other newspapers, like maybe we'd need like a page worth of ads collectively. And our production costs are maybe, let's say $300 for a thousand issues. Okay. So if I know we could sell like 16 units total, I should just divide 300 by 16 and charge that much for each ad. Like I'll sell all the ads and break even which is the absolute wrong way to do it. <laughs> I'd sell three ads and I'd be like, great, we only lost $250. <laughs> oh, what am I doing? 
And by the time we were retiring the paper, by the time I had graduated, I was like, huh, maybe the smart thing to do would have been to price one ad at our break-even cost. And then each other ad would have just have been money that we could have put away into the coffers. Yeah. We actually did end up breaking even off of ad sales about halfway into that school year. So we were selling a lot of ads for a dirt, dirt, dirt cheap price, but we weren't spending any more money out of pocket. And that was a huge victory just to be able to say, well, like, yeah, we've lost money on this venture coming into it, but we've hit this break even point. And as we grow further on, as we've revised our pricing sheet, we're going to be making money offsetting that early loss and putting money aside for product improvement. Gotcha. Yeah, very cool. Um, were you just cold calling local local businesses or people that were advertising in um, in the official uh, student papers? We we had three different strategies we were following. One was cold calling businesses that we thought would appeal to our demographic: head shops, restaurants, people who wanted to advertise to the late night student crowd. We uh, did a lot of outreach to people who were advertising in other newspapers. The logic being, they're trying to reach students; they have a budget. They would love to advertise with us. We're even cheaper than our competitor. Right. Makes sense. And we also did a lot of outreach to student organizations that weren't well represented through the other newspapers on campus. These are these are organizations who didn't have a large budget, but did want to reach students or had a mandate to advertise out there. So our low price made sense for them. They knew they might not reach their exact audience or as large of a segment. But for the price, they were willing to make a larger ad spend, a multi-issue ad spend and be set for four or six issues. Gotcha. Very cool. Uh, but you can find a, um, um, a, a successor to, to carry on the legacy after you left? Uh, the biggest lesson I took away from that project was understanding how to delegate to people and how to empower people to own a part of an organization. I was very unsure about how to do that as we were starting and growing the paper. I felt that as one of the founders, obviously I should be doing everything. I need to be involved everywhere to help support these people when the flip of it is really true. When somebody new joins the organization, if they say, gee, I'm like, I'm kind of interested in advertising sales. My role as a founder is to empower them as much as possible, saying like, that's wonderful. Like, I want to support you. What are your ideas? Like, how can we make this a success for you? And just let them run with it because they'll be more satisfied with it. They'll be happier with it. And they'll have like they'll have that literal ownership of it and be really motivated to make it real and make it happen. So I did none of that. When it came time to pass the torch to other people, there were uh, two writers and one copy editor who said, hey, we really like this. We love contributing to it. We want to take over. And that was the transition. Yeah. Okay. Well, very cool. When you're hiring, it feels amazing to finally close out a job search and hit the ground running with your new hire. But what if you could get rid of the search part and just get matched with qualified candidates? Well, now you can with our sponsor, Indeed. It's simple. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. The matching and hiring platform is trusted by over 3.5 million businesses worldwide to connect with great talent faster. And 93% of employers agree that Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites. For my next hire, I'm using Indeed to tap into a talent pool of 350 million unique monthly visitors. And what else is cool is Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use it, the better it gets. And how about this? Side Hustle Show listeners get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash Side Hustle Show. Just go to Indeed.com slash Side Hustle Show right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash Side Hustle Show. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need 
Indeed. If you travel a lot for work or for a vacation, you might be familiar with that feeling you get knowing you're leaving your space unused for long periods of time and you're still paying for that privilege. But hosting on Airbnb means you don't have to leave your home sitting empty when you're away. Being an Airbnb host isn't just a way to earn some extra cash. It's a chance to share your space and make a guest's vacation all the more memorable. You might be thinking, eh, maybe my place isn't the right fit, but don't write it off just yet. Your potential Airbnb might be right in front of you. Whether it's a spare room or even your entire home, there's an opportunity waiting. Airbnb turns your home into a practical and even profitable venture. We just got back from a family trip to Hawaii where we stayed in a great Airbnb, but our place back home could have been a highlight to somebody else's travels, and we could have used the extra cash to help pay for the trip. So if you're curious about hosting on Airbnb, find out how much your space could be worth by visiting airbnb.com slash host. Once again, that's airbnb.com slash host. Yeah, I think uh, that's uh, the weekly enema is awesome for... Um for a couple of reasons, you know, one, because it's, you know, it's not revolutionary. It's, it's a newspaper, you know, it's like, a, you know, a hundred year old business model or even older, mm-hmm. um, but just kind of a new angle or, or like applying, like you said, from the onion, but just hyper local, um, mm-hmm. you know, and so just kind of a, a really cool combination uh, of those two things. And it, it was just a blast to see that, to see so early on that to, to test an idea, it took time and it took a little bit of access, but that was it to really prototype that newspaper. We didn't have to hire some production staff. We didn't have to source some writers. We could just kick something out there and see like, will people take this if I stand in front of them and say, here, take this. Right. And they did. And man, that lesson has been imprinted on me ever since then. It's easy to test a business idea and get feedback early on. Yeah. And it's a little bit of, of getting over yourself and, and being the one to stand out, you know, in the middle of campus and, and handing it out. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, it's a good, uh, it's a good lesson to learn. And it was fun. Like I look back on it and that was one of the most exciting experiences of my college career, making something and having people be excited enough to say, I like what you're doing. I want to join. Yeah. How can I help? So, um, okay. So we're going to move kind of, uh, so Greg, you say, let's say, um, graduation comes and you do what everybody else does and you get a job, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so where, 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 sorry, where were you working? My first job out of college was at a small startup in Eugene called Arkimoto. And I'll paste a link into the chat robot here. Arkimoto was founded by Mark Frohmeyer, the son of the former University of Oregon president, and their their mission was to bring an electric vehicle, an affordable electric vehicle to market. So I joined at first as a social media freelancer and then was hired on to help with some web development, some copywriting, and some social media work part-time. And uh, uh, that was my first gig out of college. And it was part-time. It was paying some of the bills, but I was looking for other projects to do on the side, other opportunities on the side to build up a safety net in terms of income, give myself a little more security. They're a startup. I didn't know how long they'd be around. And uh, that's when I really started looking at marketing freelancing under the umbrella of my business Look Shiny as a way to pay the bills and help businesses with their marketing strategy. Okay, very cool. So, uh, so Kai's business is called Look Shiny. You can find him at LookShiny.com. Um, so it's a, a web development shop and kind of marketing consultancy. Mm-hmm. Um, 
what else what else can we say as part of the plug here the the plug is I haven't updated the website in a bit since I've been working with some long-term clients, but the plug I'd say is my mission is to help business owners, entrepreneurs, freelancers, and consultants build a business themselves and be that through marketing tools and channels like online advertising or website development or consulting to help get the business started. My mandate is to help other people succeed in whatever way I can. That's that's great, and I think this is a a really good example because it's um, basically planting your flag and saying, "Hey, I'm in business," um, and maybe even leveraging the skills that you learn on your other job, the social media, the development stuff, like, um, and kind of yeah, leveraging those into uh, this side hustle that you know I don't know if. The, the exact time frame on it, but eventually allowed you to leave dreary Eugene for, for sunny Honolulu. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And in terms of that time frame, uh, see, I graduated college and was working at Arkhamoto. That must've been 2008. And I made the step out of Eugene in 2012. So in between those two points, I was working at day jobs and continuing to grow my marketing practice and really getting clarity on, what my vision was in terms of where I wanted to be, what work I wanted to do and how I wanted that work to support my, my passions. Yeah. So, so let's talk about kind of, it's, it's easy or it's one thing to say, Hey, look at me, I'm in business. Um, we do web stuff, we do social media stuff, we do marketing stuff. Um, but how do you go about pitching that to a potential customer? How do you identify who your potential customer is and, and how do you convince them that they need your service? Great, great questions. I think that's something that I see freelancers, consultants, and entrepreneurs struggling with and working with and trying to get clarity on all the time. And it's something that I've definitely struggled with over my time as a consultant. Man, the, like there's two parts of that. One is how do you figure out who you want to work with and how do you convince them that you're the right person to work with them? In terms of what I tried and failed at, my first strategy was just saying like, well, what type of businesses do I necessarily want to work with? And I've always had a passion for food carts. So okay. <laughs> 2009, 2010, I was like, I want to be the go-to guy for website development and marketing for food carts in Eugene. The only problem is food carts don't have any money. <laughs> And so I, it's all cash. So they've got tons of money. <laughs> it's a VC funded revolution. I mean, I, I love food carts so much, but the truth is like the entrepreneurs who are starting it, they're sinking their money into building this business. They're sinking their money into buying the supplies they need to make the food for the day. They don't have the capital for a couple thousand dollar marketing project. So I ran into that head first for probably six or nine months, pitching different food carts, trying to work with entrepreneurs until I finally saw, well, maybe it's more successful for me if I look at like the types of clients I want to work at, work with, and which of these clients actually have a budget, which of these actually have the amount of money I'd want to be making from a consulting instance. That's true. If your if your customers don't have any money to pay you, that means they're not a great customer. Mm-hmm. So I started breaking down. I started breaking it down into, well, what what skills do I have? And what different businesses can I identify that 
have a need for these services? And where's that overlap between the skill I could provide and the interest they have and the need that they have for what I can be providing to them? And so at the same time, I was transitioning through a couple different careers. I left Arkimoto to join uh, Iris Educational Media as the sales manager and then left Iris Educational Media to join Palo Alto Software as a marketing manager. And at the same time, I was working on growing this consulting business on the side. Because it was just a side hustle, I wasn't putting that much fire under it. I wasn't saying that, oh, this is something I want to grow to the biggest size possible right now. But I was constantly thinking about it and evaluating different opportunities as they came up. And I kept seeing that I had a connection with entrepreneurs who were starting businesses and needed a web presence. So I started realizing that, well, maybe food carts aren't the right avenue for my passion for entrepreneurs and business owners, but there definitely is a segment of the population that needs some web presence, needs some marketing help, and has that budget to afford my services. So I started focusing in on those projects, and it probably was late 2010, early 2011, when I finally had that realization that I needed to set my prices high enough to really start saving away money if I wanted to make the escape from a day job and focus on my side hustle as that primary source of income, well, I needed to get a couple ducks in the row first. I needed to really evaluate, like, what's the budget I'd have if I left my day job and just focused on my side hustle as that primary source of income? And once I get that in line, well, how much work do I want to be putting each month to get to that target? And how does that affect the prices I'm going to be charging? Right. If you're going to be working in your, um, you know, in your five to nine, if you're going to be working, you know, after working all day, you got to make it worth your while, um, you know, in terms of, you know, what's my hourly rate going to be? And, and it's a little bit different. A lot of the stuff I do is completely speculative and, you know, maybe this will make money down the road. Maybe it won't. Um, but for a straight, um, kind of a, a, a you know a website development gig it's got to be you know that flat rate where it's like i've got to make a decent kind of hourly wage off of this gig or otherwise it's just not worth my not worth my time not worth my effort exactly exactly and i started to realize that i think when i broke down what my monthly budget was then i said well i need i need let's say 2500 a month to cover my expenses make my payments on my student loans and live at a quality of life that I want to be living at. Okay. And I knew that, well, when I make this transition, I want to have six months of savings in the bank. So both of those gave me two really hard targets, two really uh, solid targets to take aim at. I was able to say, well, when by the time I make this transition, I need to have 12000 in the bank and I need to have 2500 a month coming in for a couple months planned out to give me that security to make the jump. Yeah, that's awesome. And that's very, um, that's very four hour work week. And that's very, um, you know, rich dad, poor dad kind of, uh, escape the rat race. Um, yeah, once you, you know, once your income level from, from your assets or your businesses or, you know, cover your, uh, fixed expenses, then, then you're golden and you have that freedom to do whatever you want. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, so let's go back a little bit. Let's talk about, um, it's, it's kind of crazy. Like in 2010, just, Still, the massive, massive opportunity there in, in in small businesses that have crappy websites or, you know, just, you know, they built their first website in 1996 and haven't touched it since. Or, you know, they have these amazing flash intros that are terrible. Or it's just like 
is really, really crazy. Even now, three years later, it's still nuts how many just absolutely terrible websites you see. And you're like, oh, God, can I like, let me just throw up something on WordPress for you in 20 minutes. And, you know, I can triple your conversion rate. Like, and you don't even have to pay me. I just do this as a community service. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, so did you go like um, actively, uh, I don't know, like with such a big world out there, like did you have people seeking you out or is it still more of a proactive sales, um, you know, cold calling or like how did you find those first clients? I think the first client I got from this business was a referral from a mentor I had in college. They said, oh, I have this friend who needs a website. Kai, you know web stuff. Why don't you two work together? Let me introduce the two of you. Okay. Put you in a room together okay, and see great. what happens. And that referral turned into that first project. And I think I probably charged them like $200 for the website. And it took me 60 hours to put together because oh. <laughs> I didn't understand like setting that scope or pricing my services for that first, for this early, early site. It was just like, well, yes, I want to make money doing this. You want to pay me for this thing that I've learned how to do in my free time? That's wonderful. Yeah, that's awesome. From there, the biggest source of business, the most consistent source of business was always referrals. Having that personal relationship with somebody and having them go to their network and say, like, does anybody need some marketing work or some website work? I know this guy. He could help you out with this. That always led to a really positive interaction and a really positive uh, uh, potential relationship with a future client. Gotcha. Aside aside from that, it was direct outreach to business owners, direct outreach to people I knew in the community who had websites or who I heard needed websites or needed marketing materials. And from that, I was able to land clients. Okay, very cool. Um, so so obviously the rates have increased from, from $200 a little bit and are now sustaining. So that's um, that's one of the points that comes up a lot is – is how much to charge when you're first starting out? Because um, in the in the web development business and in the photography business, for, sorry, photography business and, and everything else, you know, portfolio sells. And when you have no portfolio to lean back on, you know, there's a, a hesitation among customers, especially those who aren't given a, a word of mouth referral. Um, but the temptation is. Uh, to sell yourself short initially and maybe build up that portfolio and then, um, you know, then that will justify higher rates down the road. And that's exactly what I lived through for the first part of my freelancing career. I felt because I didn't have enough experience in the bank, well, why would anybody pay me the rates that I really wanted to have? And it was actually in a conversation on Hacker News with Patrick McKenzie at Patio 11 I, I was I was posting in a thread about consulting rates, and I said, "Well, you know, I've been charging a consulting rate of I think by then I was charging fifty dollars an hour, and I'm really excited. Like the next level for me, when I level up, I feel I will be able to charge a hundred dollars an hour." Okay. And Pat, Patio responded, and he said, "Well, kind of here's a question for you: in the next six months, what will actually have changed that will enable you to charge a hundred an hour? Will you be learning some new skill, or like what exactly will have happened that will flip that switch on?" And I thought about it and I responded and I said, you know, nothing honestly will change. I just don't feel, I would feel at that point I will have enough experience. And he said, paraphrasing, like, screw that. <laughs> just start charging $100 an hour now. It doesn't, you aren't going to magically get some certification, some badge, some award that will say, well, Kai, you have now unlocked the ability to charge $100 an hour. Just quote your client that rate now 
and see what happens. I was working on a proposal. I put in the new rate. They accepted it. That's and, that's great. I think you're. I mean, the biggest fear for anybody raising their rates is is the backlash from customers, or I'm not going to make any sales now. Um, so, but you're saying at least this one client was that was not an issue. It was not an issue with that client, and I raised my rates to a hundred dollars an hour with all future clients, and I've raised them further since. It it showed me that it, it taught me a larger lesson, which I'll get to in a second. But it showed me that. Any fear and uncertainty I have in a moment like that, well, that's just coming from me. That's a voice in my head saying, this is something you should be afraid of, Kai. You're taking a risk here. People might notice you. You shouldn't do this. Yeah. And I was able to realize that, well, that voice doesn't necessarily have my best intentions in mind. That the value the client sees for the service I'm providing is actually completely different than the value I see in the service I'm providing. I might say, well, great, I'm putting together a website. This will take about 30 hours. I'm charging $100 an hour, so I'm saying this is worth $3,000. But if that client gets a website they're able to use or any marketing asset or anything at all that they're able to use for years to come, well, what's what's the value to a small business owner to have a professional website that they're able to use for the next three years? It's a lot more than $3,000. It's a lot more than whatever hourly rate I'm pegging myself at. That's true, and I think – I'm sorry to interrupt. That's that's an excellent point for anyone trying to make a similar – sales pitch is like, yeah, you're going to be faced with this upfront investment and maybe it's $3,000, but but this is the first time I've heard it is kind of the pitch it as amortize that over time. Um, because yes, it's an upfront cost, but yes, this is an asset that will pay dividends for you for months, for years down the road. That's really, really good stuff. Exactly. Exactly. And I, now when I'm working with a new client, I try to go a step further and rather than pitching them on the strength of my portfolio, pitching them on the strength of websites I've designed or developed in the past. When I'm meeting with a client, my, my entire role and function is to understand the challenges that client is experiencing in their business and what value they would see in having those challenges be removed. So a client and I might start an encounter and they say, we need a new website. All the kids want a website. We need a new website for our business. Well, what, what's the problem they're actually trying to solve here? And it might turn out that their problem is, hey, you know what? Sales have been declining. We need a way to attract new customers or reactivate old customers. And the tool that they picked was we need a website. But by focusing on what's the value they want to get out of our interaction, I'm able to come back to the table with a proposal that might be larger or in a different scope than the resource we initially started talking about. And from there, I'm able to pitch it to them as, well, when, when we talked about your needs, you said you wanted to solve problems A, B, and C. Here's my proposal on how we could solve problems A, B, and C. You said it was costing you this much, and you thought you'd make this much more money. So if we implement this proposal, by your logic, you would be saving $5,000 a month or making an additional X dollars a month. At that point, by structuring my entire encounter, my entire pitch and discovery process around their needs and the value that they expect to be seeing, I could charge almost anything I want at that point because I focused it entirely on what their needs are what value they want to see out of this, and how this how how I could solve the biggest problem that they're facing in their business. Yeah, take take away my pain, I'll pay you. <laughs> exactly, exactly. So more so than defining myself as a website developer. I mean, it's my bookshiny.com right now says like I will build websites, but more so than defining myself as a website developer, I've come to interacting with clients as somebody who could use technology and marketing strategies to solve the problems they face in their business. Right, 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 right. 
And that might just end up being like, well, this is a website for your business. But the entire encounter is now faced around what's the problem you're facing? What's the pain you're experiencing? How can we stop you from feeling that pain? Gotcha. So the actual nuts and bolts of this business, it's a skills-based business using skills you picked up, um, you know, some, some on the job, some during school and some in your spare time. Um, so kind of what's the, the mix there. And it's, it sounds like it's mostly your uh, one man shop, you yourself doing the work, or is there a, a team behind, um, behind some of the stuff too? It's a one man shop. I've worked with freelancers. I do work with freelancers on projects. If the scope is large enough or the scope involves a skill set that's not my forte, But it's primarily been a one-man shop to initially give me some extra cash, help pay down the student loans, and later on help cover my expenses as I make the escape from a day job to more entrepreneurial activities. Very cool. Very cool. Um, So let's – I guess we're coming up on uh, 45 minutes here so we can kind of move towards uh, wrapping things up. Let's talk just real quick um, about any, um, you know, tips or resources that that you really love, you really think are pertinent for side hustle entrepreneurs or or maybe listeners of this podcast. I think the the biggest tip I could give, the thing I always struggled with is understanding what your motivation is, understanding like what you're reaching towards. If it's, I want to start a side hustle, so I'm making some extra money each month. That's wonderful. If it's, I want to make the escape and leave my day job to travel, understand what that shiny vision is, what that, like the highest ideal that you want to achieve is and hold that in your mind, like create a space for that in your life because with clarity on what you're trying to build, what your what the light at the end of the tunnel is, it becomes so much easier and sweeter to achieve it. Definitely for, for years there, since I graduated college until about a year and a half ago, I was lost trying to figure out, like, what is it I actually want to do? I kind of like my day job. I kind of like my side hustle thing. When I realized that, hey, I want, to, I want to have a vehicle that will let me travel around the U.S., not work full time, that will let me interact with interesting people and cover my expenses, well, that was such a clear vision. It let me grow the business organically in that direction. Yeah, that's great. I think Tim Ferriss calls it uh, dreamlining. Um, mm-hmm. But but you're totally right. Like if you if you don't have a destination in mind or a picture of what what success looks like, like how are you ever going to take the right path to get there? Exactly, exactly. Just defining that success. If it's if it's taking 30 minutes in a cafe and just brainstorming, like what do I want to achieve a year from now? Where do I want to be? Or a more formalized process with a coach or a consultant or a friend or a mentor. Just having an idea of what you want to see in the future. I mean, then you're able to shoot for it. Yeah, I think that's a, you know, we're always so caught up in, in the in the day-to-day stuff. You really got to take some time out to to slow it down and to zoom out a bit and say, well, you know, really, what is it that I want? And, and is the path that I'm on going to get me there? Mm-hmm. Um, and I've, you know, <laughs> been, been through several soul-searching uh, episodes like that. And, and I still don't have all the answers, but... Um, you know, I think it's a really, really good exercise to try and, you know, look even, you know, one year out, five years out, 10 years out and say, what do, you know, what's my best guess for, for what success is going to look like? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Exactly. And it could change. My, my vision has changed 
numerous times since I left my job, since I've been moving around the U.S., but when I come to that period of reflection and I'm able to pinpoint it like, well, it used to be over here, but now it's kind of moved over to this thing. If Once I know that, it removes a lot of that uncertainty. It doesn't let me compete against myself or distract myself from achieving. Very cool. Very cool. Kai, thanks so much for, um, for coming on the uh, Side Hustle show. Um, as we wrap up, I guess, just any last minute words of wisdom for, uh, for Side Hustle Nation? I, I say to anybody who's contemplating starting a business or starting a project on the side, I say go for it. I say pick a target, pick like an income level. In six months, I want to be making 500 a month and get to work on it. It's, it's liberating. It's fun. It's exciting. And you never get started until you take that first step forward. And there you have it, folks. Uh, get started. Make something happen. And uh, that's great advice from Kai Davis. If you want to learn more about Kai, check him out um, at lookshiny.com or on Twitter. He is Kai S. Davis, K-A-I-S Davis on Twitter. Um, and that's it for our show today. Stick around next week for um, a really great episode. We've got um, Anarcho Fighter. Um, it's his uh, Fiverr handle. He's uh, one of the top sellers on uh, the entire Fiverr network and uh, was able to actually buy a house with his Fiverr earnings. So we're going to learn exactly how he did it and how you can have success on that platform. That's uh, next week in episode five. Um, until next time, we'll see you then. Thanks for listening to the Side Hustle Show at www.sidehustlenation.com. 